The briefing is brought to you in association with the Sustainable Cities in Action Forum at Expo City Dubai. The Sustainable Cities in Action Forum at Expo City Dubai is a place for city leaders, developers, architects and designers to come together and innovate for the future of urban spaces. It's an opportunity for the Global South to convene in the Global South. It's a testbed for real-world solutions that will shape the future of people and planet. You can hear from the innovative thinkers and inspirational voices that drove the narrative at this year's edition by listening to Monocle's special episodes of The Briefing, recorded live at Expo City Dubai in March. Find and listen to the shows now at monocle.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The Sustainable Cities in Action Forum 2024. Collaborate. Innovate. Transform. You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 22nd of December 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller, coming up on today's programme. This struggle will define in what world our children and grandchildren will live. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky addresses U.S. Congress. Did his speech land as he hoped? Extended analysis of a remarkable moment coming up. Also ahead, a special festive global countdown and an arguably even more special What We Learned monologue, reflecting not just on the passing week, but the passing year. Plus, we'll wrap up the latest business headlines. That's all coming up right here on The Briefing on Monocle 24. And welcome to today's edition of The Briefing with me, Andrew Muller. Late last night, UK time, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky addressed a joint sitting of the US Congress. Clad in the khaki fatigues he has pledged to wear until Ukraine's war is won, Zelensky reiterated his familiar themes, that Ukraine can defend itself and recover its territory if sufficiently equipped, and that Ukraine is not merely defending itself, but Europe and the wider West. The timing was also significant. In a few weeks, a new Republican-majority House of Representatives will be sworn in, containing not a few members who take a notably more charitable view of Russian belligerents than Republicans of previous generations. Here is some of what President Zelensky had to say. Ukraine never asked the American soldiers to fight on our land instead of us. We have artillery. Yes. Thank you. We have it. Is it enough? Honestly, not really. (laughs) And next year will be a turning point. I know it. The point when Ukrainian courage and American resolve must guarantee the future of our common freedom. The freedom of people who stand for their values. That was the president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, speaking to the United States Congress yesterday. Well, I'm joined now with more on this by Chris Chermak, Monocle's Washington, D.C. correspondent, Victoria Vishnivska of the Independent Anti-Corruption Commission in Kiev, and Dr. Jenny Mathers, senior lecturer in international politics at Aberystwyth University. Uh, Victoria, I will come to you first. That was obviously quite late last night that that was broadcast in Kiev. Where it was possible, did you get the sense that people were staying up to watch it? 
Well, yes, actually, it's no doubt that Ukrainians were trying to follow this trip to, to the uh, to the U.S. very closely, as much as we could, considering the electricity shortages. But um, the ones who had electricity, they, they could see it everywhere, in the internet, in their phones, um, even on the radio, by the way, um, on television. So... Uh, People actually stood in front of their TVs if they had the opportunity to do so, uh, and they watched, they listened. And just to follow that up, Victoria, how big or significant a moment did that feel to you? And I guess, was it accompanied by any nervousness about President Zelensky leaving the country? Oh, definitely. Well, first of all, there is also no doubt that we are enormously proud to see our president. We are enormously proud to listen to his powerful speech and contemplate the very fact that we are right now living through this exact historical moment. And um, seeing reaction to Zelensky and his words um, remind us uh, once again that we are not alone. It is also very important. And it's just wonderful to understand and feel exactly feel that we are indeed not alone. We also understand that it's not only him who is greeted in such a way, it's um, it's all of us receiving his standing ovations. But as you've said, apart from that, uh, from the very obvious positivity, there's, uh, there's also a moment of fear. Um, although Ukraine is definitely not the safest place on earth right now, uh, still seeing our president abroad is a bit of a, a disturbing experience, I would say. We genuinely feel something can happen to him. We care for him and we want him back as soon as possible. Uh, Chris Chermak, to bring you in, obviously, as the introduction mentioned, the timing of this was significant. Both Zelensky and President Joe Biden understand that it might become more difficult to get Ukraine all the help it needs. What was your sense of how the speech landed with the Republican Party? Well, as ever, Volodymyr Zelensky is very good at targeting his speech to mm -hmm. the audience that he is addressing. And he did target much of the rhetoric, I would argue, to skeptical Republicans, even in terms of his language. You know, he talked about what was at stake, the global security order that Ukraine would help to, you know, defying Russia here would help to make other countries like China think twice. He emphasized, as you heard in the clip, that there would be no boots on the ground from the U.S. Ukraine was very capable of doing this themselves. He called it a good investment mm. uh, in, 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 uh, in global security in general. And I think... Some of that did land with Republicans, what we talked about this on yesterday's show as well. But in terms of some of the reactions, I do think it is significant that what you see from Republicans is still essentially some skepticism because they have to play to a certain amount of their base that wonders why we are why the US is spending money on Ukraine but there is also very much understanding that the vast majority of the public still recognizes that some aid at very least is needed and even Zelensky for that matter the other thing he talked about was he didn't necessarily use the speech to ask for more he simply made the case that aid for Ukraine was necessary and why it was necessary and some of the reactions, Representative Mary Miller of Illinois, uh, for example, um, did say, I will oppose giving more money to Ukraine while our own southern border remains open to an invasion led by drug cartels. 
That, in my mind, gives you an example of how this is going to play out, that there will be a lot of horse trading almost in the new Congress between differing priorities that Republicans have, and there will be oversight. Another one, Thomas Massey said, most of my constituents do not wish to have their money sent to Ukraine, especially not without oversight or an audit. So that will also be, I think, where focus will be. But you can see that Republicans are still somewhat couching it in like, well, if I get my priorities, then we might be more willing to give aid to Ukraine as well. I mean, some of us are old enough to remember when, say whatever else you will about the Republican Party, you could rely on them to be pretty solid uh, where Russia was concerned. And on that, I'll bring you in, uh, Jenny Mathers. Um, Zelensky's speech will have had also, I'm sure, an audience, if perhaps a less appreciative one, in Russia. Do we get any sense yet of what reaction we can expect from Moscow? Mm, yeah, we've already had a response from Dmitry Peskov, who's the Kremlin spokesman, uh, and he's basically said, well, this this further um, support of Ukraine from the US with military uh, weapons and so on, this is just simply going to uh, prolong the conflict and it's simply going to postpone uh, any kind of resolution and so on. So he's, he's very much uh, in keeping with what Putin and others have been saying, which is, uh, you know, Ukraine is the, is the American's puppet. Uh, it's really the U.S. that's pulling the strings. And if only the U.S. would stop arming Ukraine, uh, then the war would be over very quickly. In other words, Russia could get what it wants. So that's that seems to be the way that, that they're going to, to frame it predominantly. Uh, Jenny, to follow that up, among the more practical headlines of Zelensky's trip is, of course, that the U.S. is very much not going to stop arming Ukraine. And they are, in fact, going to step it up a little bit by finally contributing at least one uh, Patriot surface-to-air missile battery. There's been an understandable perhaps nervousness among America about is there a point at which Russia will regard a a particular variety of equipment as an escalation too far? Do we have any understanding yet of where Russia might decide that red line is? Not really, no. I think it's in Russia's interest, really, to keep the West guessing and uncertain, because what Russia wants to do is to ensure that the West uh, deters itself, basically ensures that there's enough doubt and uncertainty about what Russia might do in certain cases that uh, the West will say, oh, we need to stay well back away from where that line could possibly be. Uh, so I, I don't see Putin drawing any red lines in the sand anytime soon because he wants us to draw them for him and he wants us to uh, to really be concerned about what he might do in the future and and therefore uh, you know sort of pull back from, from supporting Ukraine fully. Uh, Chris, I will come back to you because if we think about another audience uh, for Zelensky's speech, that will have been the rest of Europe. And as you were correctly saying, he's been very skillful all the way through this, although he's had to do most of his speeches remotely, about understanding who is listening to him and how they might hear it. Um, was there, do you think, in Zelensky's address last night, a kind of implicit nudge to Europe saying, I shouldn't have to be asking America to do everything? Um, I, I don't think that came from Zelensky yesterday. You might argue it came from Joe Biden mm. during the press conference with Zelensky. He made some allusions to, to the idea that the Europeans understand what's at stake here even better than we do uh, because of because of where they are. So I, I, I read some of that as a, a bit of a nudge towards Europe that they should be more heavily involved because, yes, the reality of this is Zelensky went to Washington because Washington is by far the biggest 
largest donor, particularly of military equipment, um, to Ukraine. And you did see some reactions in Europe about that. Should there be more involvement in Germany? The Christian Democrats sort of used the speech to say, we, or used uh, Zelensky's speech to say, we should also be sending a Patriot missile battery, uh, for example, to Ukraine. So you've seen some questions within recriminations within Europe as well about their role in this. And to your point earlier about Republicans as well, certainly that would probably be something to look for in 2023. Republicans saying Europe should pay a greater share of Mm. this. So it'll be interesting to see whether there's some impact from that as well. Uh, Jenny, there was one other concrete detail I did want to ask you about. And these were the new curbs on technology exports to the Wagner Group, which is this semi-deniable mercenary militia which deploys at Moscow's whim in various theatres, including you. Ukraine. Um, What do we know about the curbs and how much are they going to matter? And I guess the even more obvious question is why hasn't this been done before? Um, Right. Well, I think the Wagner Group was already under sanctions uh, since about 2017. Uh, But these are more, um, you know, rigorous sanctions, shall we say. In theory, this means the new sanctions mean that Wagner Group should not be able to acquire um, any equipment which is made using American-made equipment. Um, So that that casts a a wider net over what they shouldn't be able to get hold of. Um, As far as why it wasn't done earlier, well, I think what we've seen is is an escalation in Wagner Group's um, participation, shall we say, contributions to this war in in really grisly and brutal ways. Uh, And it may simply be that, that, you know, Wagner's own participation is what tipped uh, Washington over the line to say, well, we have to do something more dramatic here because they're they're clearly becoming uh, more of a menace in Ukraine. Uh, Victoria, just finally, I I want to come back to you because one of the other things that President Zelensky stressed last night was that this was obviously not just a serious struggle, but is likely to be a long one. He talked about next year being pivotal. And a, a variation on a question I've asked a lot of Ukrainian guests these last few weeks as they look forward to Christmas, whether they celebrate either or both of the Christmases that Ukraine has coming up. Um, What is your sense of how much celebrating people in Ukraine will be able to do and how Ukrainian morale will hold up through winter? Well, we had our Christmas tree installed in Kiev. That says something, I guess. Uh, More importantly, um, I see on the streets that people lack some celebrations and they will definitely try to use this opportunity as much as they can. So um, people are tired of negative emotions. That's no doubt. Um, because of that, um, finding just some ways to celebrate, some ways to relax, some ways to just smile, be happy, uh, finding those ways is essential for us. So I have, uh, knowing Ukrainian nature, I am uh, absolutely adamant that even in the worst times we find and we will find um, capacity to celebrate the best, uh, the best as we can. Victoria Vishniska, Jenny Mathers and Chris Chermak, thank you all for joining us. You're listening to The Briefing. Here is Emma Searle with the day's other headlines. Thanks, Andrew. Benjamin Netanyahu has secured a deal to form a new government in Israel. His six-party coalition will be made up of far-right political partners, which will see Mr Netanyahu return to power as the head of the most right-wing administration in the country's history. Berlin has sent its first batch of BioNTech COVID-19 vaccines to China, the first foreign COVID jab to be delivered to the country. Around 20,000 German expats will initially receive the vaccine, in line with the deal made during German Chancellor Olaf Scholz's visit to Beijing last month. 
Berlin is reportedly pushing for non-German foreigners to be allowed access to the shot if they want it. A signed parliamentary transcript of New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern insulting an opposition leader has sold for more than 63,000 US dollars. Miss Ardern muttered a jibe directed at Libertarian Act Party leader David Seymour, calling him an arrogant prick. After the exchange went viral, the pair agreed to auction off a copy of the record to raise money for prostate cancer. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Emma. Time now on the briefing for the latest business news with Bloomberg's Ewan Potts. Um, Ewan, we have in this spot uh, discussed Turkey's economy and Turkish inflation more than once, um, but they're now announcing, or Turkey's government is now announcing, a big hike in the minimum wage. Would it be untowardly cynical to suggest that this is perhaps not unrelated to the looming election? Andrew, yes, Turkey's minimum wage is to go up by 55% next year in a bid to ease the burden of the soaring costs of living uh, in the economy. Now, as you say, it is election in next year. Uh, June, we'll see the presidential election. The announcement was made by President Erdogan in a televised uh, address in Ankara. The monthly net minimum wage next year will be 8,500 liras. That's $450 per month. It follows two increases this year. Normally, the minimum wage is increased once. It increased by 50% at the beginning of this year. And then there was an interim rise in the middle of the year. Turkey has a really bad problem with inflation. The government says about a third of the workforce is on minimum wage. So this is pretty significant for a lot of uh, Turkish workers. It's just the latest attempt to cushion households from this terrible inflation problem. The official inflation rate in Turkey, 84% in the year to November. Lots of Turks say that it's actually worse in reality. According to the IMF, that gives uh, Turkey the world's fifth highest inflation rate. Um, Under pressure from Erdogan, the central bank has been cutting interest rates, uh, which is a problem if you have rising inflation. Most central banks around the world, as we know, have been rising interest rates. Uh, uh, Turkey has been cutting them, and that is seeing uh, the lira sell off. It's down almost 30% over the course of the year against the dollar. And that, of course, means a lot of imported inflation as uh, goods imported from overseas become more expensive. So, yeah, Turkey hiking its minimum wage next year. And Ewan, we have learnt a lot and more or less exclusively the hard way over the last 10 months how big conflicts can affect food security, but we're also learning that changing dietary habits can make a difference. Yeah, fascinating. This bagels in New York, cakes in Beijing and instant noodles in Jakarta. Wheat eaten on three continents seems pretty unremarkable these days. But just a generation or so ago, Indonesians probably would have reached for a bowl of rice. The Chinese maybe for a sweet potato. But a combination of rising incomes, the impact of Western culture and industrial farming focused on just a very few crops means that the food we're eating is more and more similar. And that means more of us are ever dependent on imported food. And it also has big implications for global food security. This is the subject of today's uh, Bloomberg Big Take. It's a deep dive into a a fascinating subject. There are around 6,000 plant species, I read, that humans have eaten over time, but the world mostly now eats about nine, and of which just three, rice, wheat and maize, provide 50% of all calories. And of course, wheat has really been in the news this uh, year. Uh, Two of the world's biggest five producers, uh, Russia and Ukraine, uh, have had supply disrupted for obvious reasons. That saw global wheat prices spike almost 40%. And in the resulting scramble for supplies, many countries, 20 countries, in fact, impose export restrictions. And that really compounded a global 
food crisis. But just to end on a, a more positive note, global food prices as measured by the UN Food Price Index, uh, although elevated compared to pre-pandemic levels, have now dropped back to where they were before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So that food price inflation has started to ease. Ewan Potts from Bloomberg. Thank you, as always, for joining us. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. You're listening to The Briefing with me, Andrew Muller. Now, slightly earlier in the show and indeed the week than usual, here is a special What We Learned monologue in which we reflect not on what we've learned in the last seven days, but in the last 365, give or take. If I could save time in a bottle The first thing that I'd like to do We learned this week that the producers apparently have fond recollections of the What We Learned monologue of roughly this time last December, and indeed the one of roughly the December before that, in which we were instructed to broaden our scope from the usual remit of What We Learned This Week to reflect on what we had learned all year. So we learned that, once again, we had the past 12 months from which to sift sufficient material to pad out the next six minutes or so, as opposed to the last seven days. Get on with it. Yes, get on with it. And we learned, or rather were reminded, that 2022 had furnished us with something of an embarrassment of riches, as we mostly seem to learn that people never learn, or if they do, they do so the hard way. Granted that this assessment could be accurately made of pretty much every year which has ever elapsed, but you can only work with what's in front of you. That was supposed to evoke someone putting their hand on a hot plate to see if it was hot. For if 2022 could be summed up in the kind of sound effect that can be cobbled together relatively quickly by a producer battling any number of Christmas deadlines who frankly hasn't the time for any of your more abstruse nonsense this week, then that sound effect was surely it. We learned, for example, that among the historical texts not contemplated by President Vladimir Putin of Russia during his now infamous months of lockdown in the presidential bunker library were any recollections of the Livonian War of 1558 to 1583, the Crimean War of 1853 to 1856, the Russo-Japanese War of 1904 to 1905, World War I, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, or any of what you'd reckon would be a richly instructive lexicon of Russian military disasters prompted by the delusion and hubris of those in charge. We learned, or at least he learned, that you should not underestimate an opponent who has won Ukraine's version of Dancing with the Stars. Ukraine showed strength on the battlefield using its right to self-defense in accordance with Article 51 of the UN Charter and no one will reproach us now or in the future with weakness or inability to fight for ourselves, for our independence. We are achieving a result in this fight. We learned, however, that President Putin had not lost sight of who the real victims were, as will now be translated with all due solemnity by Monocle 24's self-pitying whining desk chief, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. With the full connivance of the ruling elites, 
the culture of cancellation has turned into cancellation of culture. Tchaikovsky, Shostakovich and Rachmaninov are being removed from concert programs. We learned basically that President Putin is what you get if you take that uncle of yours who spends too much time on Facebook and give him a country to run. Here in the UK we learned that the country's single most asked question of the 21st century, i.e. is this the end for Boris Johnson, could, at the eternal risk of tempting fate, finally be answered in the affirmative. And I want you to know how sad I am to be giving up the best job in the world. But them's the breaks. We learned shortly afterwards, however, that the collective wisdom of the Conservative Party, which is to say several thousand insane retired brigadiers in Surrey who play golf in red trousers when gout permits and whose seething resentful wives pour gin on their cornflakes and think the Daily Express is full of lefty woke screeching, had decided to replace a Winston Churchill tribute act with a Margaret Thatcher one, who, we learned, was not about to be lectured at by latte-slurping metropolitan media elitists. This fictional party was a business meeting. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it was not socially distanced. They taxi from North London townhouses to the BBC studio to dismiss anyone challenging the status quo. This was, of course, a deeply unfair generalisation. Some of us get the tube from East London townhouses to the Monocle studio to dismiss anyone challenging the status quo. From broadcast to podcast, they peddle the same old answers. Didn't she pick the wrong people to mess with? We learned that British history, if we are going to go ahead and credit the royal in chaos of events with some sort of sentience, does in fact have a sense of humour, as it contrived to overlap the arrival of its shortest-serving Prime Minister with the departure of its longest-serving monarch. We learned thereby that all future students of these times, reviewing the admittedly splendid spectacle of Queen Elizabeth II's funeral, will pause the footage at exactly the same moment. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. And say exactly the same thing, specifically, who is that? We learned much more besides, of course, it was a whole year and loads of stuff happened and a complete picture can be had from seeking out the previous 50 what we learned monologues, stitching them together in one seamless audio tapestry and listening in one go. It'll only take about six hours, which is six hours you won't have to spend talking to your family. Merry Christmas to all our listeners. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Miller. Enhance the year to come and treat yourself or someone special with a Monocle subscription this festive season. To round out our 15th anniversary year, for a limited time only, there's 15% off with code RADIO15. You're listening to The Briefing with me, Andrew Muller. And finally on today's show, it's too late for me, but save yourselves. It's Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Tom Edwards with a special festive global countdown. So we embark on a very special seasonal series of global countdowns. The one, the only 
Fernando Augusto Pacheco is, of course, here with me in Studio One. And, Fernando, it's, there's an almost palpable sense of pre-Christmas excitement building here at Midori House and, indeed, around the world. Does that excitement shine through in your special selection of tracks? Absolutely. And, Tony, I have to say, for the December-January edition, I created a special winter soundtrack playlist with 50 songs. Of course, if you want to know all the 50 songs you have to buy the issue. Perhaps <laughs> subscribe to it. But, you know, I'll give you a little taster here on the Global Countdown. And, you know, this one I chose fully. Sometimes I have to follow the charts, but this is kind of my own personal chart. And there will be five different moods. One song for each mood. And I, ho- I hope you like it, Tom, as well. Um, well, let's jump straight to it. And what are these moods then? As I said, we're building up to Christmas, so I imagine there'll be some festive frivolity, but something maybe a little more thoughtful, something for family. Uh, tell us uh, how you chose your categories. Well, uh, before um, I'll tell you the song. So the first one is Christmas Paradise. So it is the, our favourite Christmas tracks. Crisp winter morning, that very kind of soothing track, you know, when you're having your breakfast on a very snowy, beautiful, sunny day. Who knows? Whatever you are, one in of the those world. classic snowy days in Sao Paulo. Right? Exactly. <laughs> and then, oh, don't worry. There's uh, there's whiskey sour by the fire. Something a bit sexier. It's winter, but you can still have some fun. That's what I'm trying to say here. And then one is called Endless Summer because I'm not forgetting about our sisters and brothers from the southern hemisphere. So something. Yes, a little bit tropical, even in December. And finally, ready for 2023. So, songs with a sense of optimism in the air. Uh, Your songs are almost always fairly optimistic and reasonably upbeat, Fernando. Uh, Just like your garments, your character shines through. Um, So where should we start and uh, how are you kicking things off? I think Christmas Paradise, one of my favourite British bands ever. And I think this band, they know how to do Christmas. It is, of course, the wonderful uh, dance group Saint-Étienne. I was born on Christmas Day. Let's have a listen. Something you can dance to, actually, as Very well. Very upbeat, but there's, there's definitely some Christmas bells tolling or peeling away in the background of that one, aren't there? And I have a little trivia as well. Bob Stanley, one of the members, he was actually born on Christmas Day. Really? So perhaps okay. a little a little personal track <laughs> there from Saint-Étienne. I think we started on a very good note. That's, that is that is certainly upbeat, and that's enough to get uh, toes tapping on Christmas uh, morning. How informed are your selections, Fernando, by memories? Because a lot of it's a time for nostalgia, of course. Mm. How important is the sort of childhood soundtrack to some of your picks? That must be front of mind as you're choosing. For me, everything, because music is about emotion. In fact, the, our next track, it's from the early 80s, but I have to be really honest, Tom, I only discovered this track this year uh, while driving in Italy in the Dolomites. It's an Italian singer, I have to say. Her name is Marcella Bella. And for the magazine, I have to say, I had to write, you know, a little snippet about the song. And look what I wrote about our next track. The Italian Chantese's epic song about never-ending desire. Oh, frisky. It's frisky. It's Marcella Bella Nell'Aria. Che mi vuoi? La mia voglia è grande e scandalosa ormai. C'è una gatta accanto a me e non rinuncia a lei. Aria. 
It's beautiful. Fernando, smouldering med pop vibes, and if I co- may. <laughs> it was in the mood crisp winter morning, but it can be a crisp winter evening as well. I was thinking uh, more, yeah, fireside, evening time, you know, as the dark closes in, that kind of vibe. And it's funny, she's Italian. It could be on the soundtrack of the second season of The White Lotus as well. Which it's I know, quite contemporary. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So Marcella Bella there, a nice discovery. Are you surprised that I'm quite into that, Fernando? I, I thought you would, I think. Oh, you know, really? I, I could you, see okay. your face changing when you heard the first <laughs> notes of Marcella. Bella. She charms us all. And who doesn't love an act with a rhyming name? Exactly, exactly. Uh, and now something, you know, that's proper sexy. I mean, because that's for the whiskey sour by the fire mood. And that's something that you would genuinely listen to in a dinner party in Tehran back in the 70s. It's a new song. Uh, it's Farsi Electro at its best. It's a really cool song uh, by Iranian singer Liras Dun Dun. It's very cool. That has got some old school style to it though, hasn't it? And it's kind of political because she recorded the album actually in Istanbul with some Iranian musicians that have to have had to leave the country. But it is a fantastic piece of work and it's kind of it is as you said a bit retro as well. You would imagine Iran Iran in the in the 70s as well. Beautiful track uh, by Liras as well. Fernando, interestingly, when you're not hostage to fortune of choosing the top tracks in a specific geographical market, you like I, it. I think you have better selections. Exactly. It's wrong footing me. The, the, all my learnings from the last few years, and they're being turned on their head here. You know what? I, I would start doing this more often. <laughs> I, I, I've done the summer one, winter, maybe a little bit in the middle, spring and, and, and you know, and autumn There as are well. four seasons, exactly. unless I'm mistaken. Uh, what next? Can you keep this uh, 100% hitting streak going? Oh, Audience, he looks doubtful, but let's see. No, not doubtful. I hope you like it. It's from my home country, so please be respectful, Tom. It's, uh, <laughs> always, Fernando, it's, always. It's, it's, it's a nice piece of naughty modern bossa nova. It's a Brazilian couple, and they are actually kind of a group, Salma e Mac. The song's called Marquinha, which in Portuguese means tan lines. Let's have a listen. Fernando, <laughs> I like it again. Oh, Tom, you're making me the very hit, happy. The hits just keep on coming. Now tell me, is this, because I'm intrigued, We I may, sort of alluded to, you know, mm. childhood, back home, etc. What is the kind of musical... And what's the what's the mood music I guess more like around Christmas time? Is that is that it? Is it just like bossa central? It is bossa central, and I have to say, of course, we go big on Christmas, but not so much on Christmas music. I gotta be honest. In Brazil, it's also very close to Carnival, which is in February. Mm. So the the top songs of Carnival are starting to be released around this season. So if you go on the radio station in Brazil, probably there will be no "All I Want for Christmas Is You." It's more kind of bossa nova, samba, rap, or or even uh, funk as well. Okay, so it's not. Too too much jingle jangle. I guess it just, it, I can't see that. <laughs> like, the mental image isn't there for me. Um, so where have we got up to, Fernando? I'm, I'm enjoying this so much. I've lost, I've lost count of the tracks. You've got surely one more. The last one is for the Ready for 2023 mood. I mean, that, that was the hardest one actually to choose because basically it's just great tunes and great trends, perhaps. That's what I want to find. It's an old song, but I think 
if you want to look for a region in Italy for good music, I think Naples is a good start. It's a good place. They have amazing DJs like New Genea, which they are on the playlist. But I chose something a bit classical here. Uh, it's emotional disco from Naples. Some Neapolitan funk as well. It's Donatella Vigiano with Napoli Canta e More. <laughs> I mean, it's fairly funky. That may be a little bit much even for me, Fernando. But you like the first four. That's all yeah, that I matters. I must say, that was a real, it was a real hit parade. Um, so come on, if you just had to bear with you one of today's five, I know it's horrible to make you choose, um, but is there one that kind of gets you ready for Christmas in a way none of the others can quite manage? Go on, choose one. Well, I will choose one and I'll try to sell more Monaco products at the same time. <laughs> you know, it's Marcella Bella. And can I be honest, Tom, you know, we also about to release the new Monaco Companion book as well. And this song actually inspired me to write an essay about the power of radio, of live radio. I'm not talking about just podcasts or Spotify playlists, because I never heard of Marcella Bell. And when I heard the song, I was I almost like stopped driving. I was like, what is that? It was such a special moment. Uh, and that's why, thanks Marcella Bella for inspiring me to write an essay for the Monaco Companion book, the second edition, which I think you should go and buy it. Available in all good retailers now, as is a subscription to Monaco magazine, where you can read more of Fernando's regular musings on music and much else besides. Uh, why not? A little last minute. You've left it late. Gift someone the gift of Monocle for the year ahead. Uh, Fernando, thank you very much. That's a Christmas gift I've enjoyed. A great playlist this week. Uh, same time next week. Shall we look ahead? We'll rendezvous again around this time. Are you good more, for that? More winter soundtrack for sure. Fernando, thank you very much. And that is all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Emma Searle and our studio manager was Callum McLean. Playing us out, another musical treat. This is Mirskuro Hutayat, the legendary men's shouting choir from Finland with a special rendition of Good King Wenceslas. And if you'd like to hear it again, and who wouldn't? That and many other delights can be found in the recent Finland-themed Christmas episode of The Foreign Desk, which can be heard on Monocle24's website or wherever better podcasts are downloaded. The Briefing returns with a special Christmas edition tomorrow at the same time. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. Sing.